Welcome to the Deep Dive Spirituality Conversations podcast. I'm your host, Brian Russell, and today it's my privilege to have a conversation about immigration with Dr. Wilfredo Alvarez. Uh, Wilfredo has personally experienced the challenge of immigrating into the United States. He, he was born in the Dominican Republic, and he moved here while he was a teenager, and he's going to share some of his experience, but he's also going to draw on his scholarly work. He has a recent book, Everyday Dirty Work, Invisibility, Communication, and Immigrant Labor. He draws on his expertise in communication. He serves as an associate professor of communication arts at Utica. And we have a wide-ranging and I think helpful conversation. And if we have ears to hear, we can all become better neighbors uh, for persons who are moving into the country and also have eyes to see and ears to hear from persons who may otherwise be invisible because of their immigrant status. Uh, Wilfredo focuses his research, his case study for his book on custodial workers at universities and some of the challenges that they face. I think you're going to find this conversation helpful, again, as we think about living out our calling of loving God and loving our neighbor as ourselves. I look forward to sharing this with you and I'd love to hear feedback from you. Let's jump into the conversation. Hi, Wilfredo. Welcome to the Deep Dive Spirituality Conversations podcast. Hello, how are you? Thank you for having me. No, it's so great that you're here. And yeah, just to get things started, can you just talk a little bit about some of the key moments in your life and journey that's led you up to today in 2022, in which you're serving as a professor and also as the author of the, the new book, Everyday Work, Invisibility, Communication, and Immigrant Labor? Yes. Well, again, thank you for the opportunity to be on your show. Um, it's it's always I always welcome uh, again the chance to to talk about the work that I do, uh, and also my my experiences, you know, as an immigrant and otherwise uh, in the United States. So, in terms of key moments. I have to I have to think back when I first arrived in the Bronx, New York, and uh, I came here with the desire to go to work like most immigrants who come to the US, especially from from developing countries, so-called third world countries. Uh, and I'll I'll say this to you, my main desire when I came here at 17 was to go work at a factory buy a pair of Nike shoes, I'm, I'm, I'm seriously, that's all I wanted to do, buy a pair of Nike shoes and perhaps some nice clothes. Mm -hmm. uh, a key turning point for me was when my uncle, uh, well, my father and my uncle both said to me, you're not going to work, you're going to school. And of course, at that point, I had completed high school in Dominican Republic. I was 17 years old and I was like, I'm, I don't like school. I'm, I really want to be finished with school. I just want to go to work and be an adult. And they said, no, 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 you, you should go register, go to the high school, the local high school and register. And I pushed back. I did not want to go to school. And my uncle basically grabbed me by the arm and said, no, you're going to go to school and register for school. So at that moment, 
that moment made a huge difference in my trajectory to now uh, because education, I went and registered, went to the high school and got registered. Uh, I attended two more years of high school, which gave me the opportunity to learn English. And then I went to college and the rest is history as they say. Uh, but that moment really gave me, set me on a path to become an educator, to become a professor, and to be sitting here talking with you now. I have to mention one more, make one more point here. And my uncle showed support, care, love for me at that moment. He knew, he believed in me more than I believed in myself, but that was just the beginning of many people along the path who displayed the same type of love and care for me. There were two wonderful, beautiful mentors once in, in high school. Uh, and they were the people also who said, no, you're going to college. Because once I was in high school, I said, okay, I, once I'm finished, then I don't want to go, I, I'm done with school. And they said, you should go to college. So they spent two years basically trying to convince me to go to college. I went to college. Once I got to college, I had a wonderful mentor who also showed that type of love, care, and compassion towards me. And this is someone who's like a father to me today. Uh, so, so for me, the common thread here is, is those relationships and people reaching out and making a connection with me at a moment when I really needed, needed them. But they remind me today that I was not afraid to ask for help, mm -hmm. which is something that many young people, I see it today, seem to struggle with. I can do it by myself. I can do it on my own. And I tell people the story today. I'm like, I was never afraid to knock on people's doors and say, I need help. So in terms of key moments, those moments, those people who reached out and said, hi, I can see, I, I'm, here, I'm here to support you, I'm here to help you. But also I, I interpersonally, right, I, I was able to, I was also someone who was okay with asking for help. It's good, it's good. Yeah, and I love the story. I mean, even on the opening pages, you talk about a conversation that you had with your uncle. And so you had a great mentor and you just listed some other folks that, that have kind of helped you along the way, especially as you moved into an, a new country. And, uh, you know, we were talking off camera, but Dominican Republic, and you, I think you said it has 10 million and you end up in a city with like, what, 15 or 20 million, however big New York is, you're in this huge place. And so how unusual it was that experience that you actually had, you know, a well-placed relative that was already here in terms, is that how, is that typical of most immigrants in the United States, would you say? And uh, how many immigrants have to face coming into the, into the country without a, without a good mentor or well-connected mentor? No, I was, I've, I've been very fortunate. Uh, I think it was the actor Paul Newman who said one once there's such a thing as, as good luck yeah <laughs> luck because he talks about how I'm not better looking than many of these guys here in Hollywood when he was starting out and he made it you know he became Paul Newman I'm like I kind of believe in that there is this mm -hmm. element of luck good fortune that I've had along the way uh, you know, some people would say my, my, like my mentor, who's a reverend, 
my footsteps are pre-ordered, right? And and you know, I'm I'm so some people would explain it that way. Um, most immigrants come somewhere because there there is some sort of support community there welcoming them. I was I was fortunate enough to have uh, my parents' sibling, my father's well, my parents' siblings. My extended family is all in New York City. So I had a lot of support, but I lived with my father and two of my uncles. Uh, and they guided me and they gave me, you know, they supported me. They took me around. I, I, was, I was very, uh, again, fortunate to have them here. Part of your question is how unusual that is. Um, Many people come, uh, you know, there is this push-pull effect when it comes to, to immigration, right? Mm -hmm. you, go, you go wherever you have that community, but you don't always, I'm trying to think of the best way to answer your question, but you do not always get the support that you need to develop yourself, whether it's professionally, just in general, professionally, spiritually, emotionally, and all of these other ways that we need to grow and develop ourselves. That, that's the whole thing about good fortune and, 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 and being really lucky. Um, so I, had, I happened to have several people in my household who were really invested in my development. That's good. That's good. Primarily those two first two years when I got to the US in New York City. Then I just moved away and, and I was on my own um, until now. Yeah, and you use the, the 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 angle in your book, which I thought was really interesting. It's and it's a great title too. Everyday work. You you use the uh, use the, pers the yeah, yeah the perspective um, of um, 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 the immigrant janitor, Latin American immigrant janitors, and the challenges that they have of being seen and heard, and and they're in and they're in an educational setting. So it's both being seen and heard by other staff members, I guess even professors, but even students. You have this interesting piece. So talk a little bit about some of the challenges that um, persons in that social location uh, face, particularly as a Latin American uh, immigrant. And, and in there, I was also curious, is are there different challenges than faced if you're a Latino over against being a Latina? Oh, excellent question. Um, so groups like Asians, Asian, Asian Americans, people of people of Asian descent, um, people of Latin American descent in the in the US social imagination, right? These are groups that are considered forever foreigners. Mm -hmm. Even if you're someone who's born and raised here, who speaks the language for whom English is your native language, you've been here multiple generations in the case of you know, many Mexican Americans, uh, from, from, from the perspective of you know, the dominant um, white European group, those historically, those groups are perceived as, as forever foreigners. Mm -hmm. So still today, many people, when interacting with folks who have this uh, surface level appearance, let's say someone like me or someone who's, uh, who has you know, this Far East traditional Asian look, I have to do air quotes here, 
immediately for many people, the perception is that they are not American. So you're having to negotiate the, those ideas, which are still prevalent in U.S. society, in everyday life. So, you know, no, where are you really from? Questions like that. Oh, your English is so good, which, you know, we use the term now microaggressions, which, you know, some people don't like. But, you know, it, it's, it's sort of well-meaning well, in uh, uh, people who are well-meaning sometimes say things based on, you know, still dominant ideologies that, that exist in U.S. society. And part of that, in my view, comes from many of us not having done the work, right, to reflect, to, 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 to become more self-aware of our surroundings. The fact that this is a multiracial, multi-ethnic society, mm -hmm. it's been the case for a long time. Um, you know, and I, that, that's just one of the reasons I would say for a lot of people, they simply have not taken the time to think and reflect and become informed about the fact that we have all these groups in our midst. Um, you know, now we have multiracial people, which is a segment of the population that it's growing. Um, so sort of, I wanna make sure I answer your question. For many of us, people of Latin American descent, similar to people of Asian descent, um, we are having to, to exist. We exist in these social locations where we're still, when we're in public, we have to overcome the idea that many people have of us uh, as not belonging, as not being from here. And that shows up oftentimes in our communication with each other. And in, in, by some of the examples that I gave you, I think when it comes to being a Latina, uh, being a woman of Latin American descent, you are dealing with several layers uh, additional labels when it comes to your humanity, you know, because you're a woman, you're supposed to be at home and raise the children. Uh, uh, your role as a woman in this society is one that it means these specific things. And that is you're supposed to be exist in the private sphere of social life, not the public sphere. So a woman who's out in the public and you know, let's say Latina, well, I want to be present. Now nah, there's something wrong with that, right? For many people, that would be the perception, right? Like, because you're a woman, you're a brown woman or Latina. Uh, so for many people that I know, many Latinas that I know, they've had to work really hard even to be able to get their families uh, um, to allow them to let them get an education. I didn't have to ask anyone to get an education. I was, yeah, I'm just gonna go get an education, right? Well, you should go, you know, you're, you're a man, you're a boy, get an education. But for many people, because they're waiting, their families for these Latinas, they're waiting to get married and have children and, and all of these other things. So I think when it comes to Latina, to close uh, my answer here, specifically, they're dealing with additional layers of beliefs and labels that, that of course place a burden on them in the, as individuals trying to move through society. Uh, so it would be naive of me to say that, you know, uh, 
Latino men, men and Latina women specific that we have similar experiences when that that is far from reality based on our on our sex or gender. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, and in everyday dirty work, you use um, you, you use janitor specifically as kind of the case study. Can can you just talk about the decision that you made in your research to to pick that particular group of people or that particular occupation as a um, as the group that you could study? So. You know, I, I I wanted to understand what it's like, similar to what what I just said about being a Latina in this mm-hmm. society. I wanted to understand what it's like to walk around with multiple uh, uh, layers of stigma of symbolic value assigned to your person. Yeah. So I thought the following: I'm an immigrant. Uh, but I speak English, uh, I have a high level of education, and I still have some very real challenges navigating US society, communicating with people in everyday life. Well, what if I'm someone who finished middle school? What if I'm someone who doesn't speak the language? What if I am someone who, once I put on a uniform, there is a stigma attached to that uniform. I wonder what everyday life is like for people like that. And I've, I've always been interested in marginalized experiences, uh, people who live in the margins of society, uh, um, stereotypically, let's say, uh, garbage collectors, sex workers. This is a, it's a group of occupations that's called considered to be dirty work I've always wondered what it's like to reside in those social spaces. So for me, the ja- studying janitors became both about understanding my own experience, but also how different our experiences were. Uh, and again, what it's like for them to navigate society with all those layers of marginalization uh, uh, in society, what it was like to communicate with other people, what it was like to to work in that occupation, what it was like outside of work for them. So that was sort of the impetus for me, seeking to understand what certain experiences are like when you reside in the margins of society. I should say what certain communication experiences are like. Yes, yeah. Yeah, and just and just talk a little about the, about the communication theory behind this. I know this is the hard question because this is what your expertise is. But if you were just going to say a couple summary things about the kind of the critical theory that you use, um, critical communication theory that you use to uh, to to do your study in terms of um, how can understanding the theories behind communication help us to work for ju- a just a more just society in terms of our interactions with people that perhaps are in these invisible occupations or or at work if we have a person that we work with um like i'm, I'm speaking as a white male who grew up in the united states so if i work with a person who's um an, uh, an immigrant bilingual in some ways at work or with neighbors or as what you also use the phrase some um, co-cultural situation so just say a little bit about how critical communication can help all of us to, I guess, be better human beings, for lack of a better word, and and be more helpful in the interactions that we have with people? Thank you for that question. Um, So 
when we talk about communication theory, um, we're talking about the ways that we explained how I'm going to simplify it, how people communicate in different spheres of social social life, whether it's in the family, whether it's in, in the workplace, et cetera. The, of course, the mass media, so mass communication, et cetera. Uh, I, I would take a step back first and say, for us to be able to, to, to look at communication first, as it happens, to study it, people must be willing to engage in communication with others. Mm -hmm. yes. This idea of willingness to communicate, or I talk about in my writing, creating spaces to communicate. And I think that's where a lot of the, the challenges come in first in our very diverse society. We do a lot of watching each other mm. from a distance. If I had to, to sum up many of the problems in this nation right now, that would be one of them, that we watch each other, but a lot when we watch from a distance, we risk not really understanding the other. Yes. So this idea of how do we create spaces to communicate we all must be willing to communicate with the other, regardless of who they are. Um, so, and I've always, again, going back to my studies and my lived experiences, I've always been interested in why is it that some people perceive others in the ways that they do? Why is it that some people perceive me the ways that they do? They don't know anything about me. So a lot of this work is also on the surface. When we talk about phenotypic traits, we're talking about hair, skin, facial features. So there is a response there to just seeing a, a guy like me on the street and having a response to me the moment I open my mouth and realize, huh, accent doesn't sound like uh, a native English speaker. So we have all of these built-in assumptions that we make about each other, and there is no effective communication happening there uh, when we're just operating on these surface-level assumptions. So when we talk about cultural communication theory, we're talking about the ways that, in this case, dominant and non-dominant groups communicate and how non-dominant groups respond uh, based on the context, their abilities to communicate, et cetera. So what I'm saying is like for people like the janitors who, who are Latin American immigrants, they are not even able to speak the language to communicate with dominant group members. In this case, we're talking about mostly middle-class uh, uh, white persons, in this case, faculty, students, and staff at the university where the study took place. Uh, so when we talk about how do we use communication theory to be better human beings, to, to create more just societies, I think it starts with being mindful of the extent to which we are willing to communicate with others. Mm -hmm. um, the, the, we're willing to communicate with others and then uh, uh, through these processes, doing self-assessment about how we communicate and with what outcomes. But, you know, th this is, 
this is something that takes effort on the parts of all, all the interlocutors, right? The, the people who are communicating. Um, and, and that's what we attempt to do when we talk about communication theory. What are we doing? How are we doing it? And with what outcomes when it comes to the ways in which we communicate with each other? Yeah, can you talk a little bit about just the technical term um, uh, co-cultural? Co is, that, is that a replacement for like a word that I think more, more listeners would be familiar with, cross-cultural? Is that just a replacement in terms of power dynamics or something? Could you say a little bit about that, that phrase, co-cultural? I think I would say the, the creator of the theory, Mark Orby, who's at Western Michigan University, he would say that that was part of the rationale there, making that, that shift mm -hmm. instead of, um, so when he, when he first proposed the theory in the late 90s, um, people would use the term like subcultural mm. or subcultures, which implies a sort of a hierarchy. So co-cultural implies more so you're still dealing with dominant group members and non-dominant group members. In this case, for instance, men in this society would be considered dominant group members, women non-dominants, right? Like whites would be dominant group members, blacks non-dominant. Uh, so I think he would say linguistically, he was trying to, to sort of uh, make a linguistic move, a language move that would place people more on a, on a similar, you know, on an even field instead of this sort of hierarchy of some groups are superior to others and therefore the subcultural language move. So I think that's part of that, that, that reasoning there to choose that that name but it's still we're still talking about uh we could say di different um, terms have different meanings but we're still talking about generally intercultural communication which is communication across uh, different cultural groups okay good I, I just i was i was just curious about that and i was and uh, i was trying to make sure i get use the right uh, right terms i actually like that idea too because it kind of puts like you said it puts things more on equal footing even if we're talking about it, communication between groups so uh, what would be some actionable takeaways from people that are listening to this conversations particularly for like native english speakers um in terms of interactions that they may have with latin american uh, immigrants uh, again, assuming uh, well-meaning uh, interactions with folks that want to do well, that don't want to cross into microaggressions and, and such like that, though obviously people will make mistakes. But as far as people of goodwill, what would be some actionable steps that, that maybe you could help um, help us with to be better neighbors uh, to persons who, uh, who for whom English isn't their first language and maybe sort of struggling to, to fit into the society? Um. I think the answer to this question is, is one that, that could permeate, that permeates all aspects, many aspects of human interaction mm -hmm. um, when it comes to how we interact with each other. And um, so, so in terms of actionable items, here, he, this is, here are some of my observations and some of the things that I think many of us should work on when it comes to our own individual work. Um, I have found that oftentimes we are dismissive mm -hmm. of other people's lived experiences. 
Um, so I have heard many people say, and in my studies, in my research, uh, there is a sense that other people are exaggerating what they're going through. And if I know several women and they all tell me, for example, that they're being dismissed in, in work meetings, why would I not believe them? Or why would I be dismissive of their lived experiences? Or if I'm talking with, I've talked with several black people that I know and they tell me that they've had unpleasant interactions with police officers, why would I not believe them? Um, I've also heard the phrase, oh, it cannot be that bad. So there is a, a little bit of, of uh, that many of us do across groups of, of dismissing other people's lived experiences instead of giving them the space to, to speak about those experiences and seek to understand and make sense of them, to ask questions, to be curious, uh, in terms of what I believe we should do, to be curious, to, to listen, to understand. Um, I think these are, and, and then to be reflective post-conversation. So first it's being willing to really listen to what could potentially be some difficult uh, uh, stories. So it's putting yourself in that position. Uh, I really want to listen to this to be curious, to ask questions, and then to reflect on the conversation we just had, and then to continue to seek these conversations. Uh, well, that was, wow, that was eye-opening. Let me talk with this other person about these things to see what they think. So it's being engaged in that process of seeking to understand. Uh, and I think if more of us were to pursue uh, uh, take that approach. I honestly believe that we would be in a much better place as a society. And I am talking about uh, uh, political ideology, religion, gender, sex, sexuality, gender identity, race, ethnicity, because the fact remains that we are all here. We occupy these lands. We occupy these social spaces. And the extent to which we seek to, to communicate with each other, uh, uh, make sense of each other, I think could, could turn things around when it comes to this nation. Uh, uh, yeah, so, so that, that idea of really being curious, seeking to understand, uh, but putting yourself in those positions that may not be very comfortable for many. Yeah, I, I think that creates everything I just said creates a foundation of growth, personal growth, that I think could make a big difference in, in the future for all of us really having to coexist. What would you say? What would be some tips? Like um, I live, you know, we were talking, I live in Orlando and actually the part of Orlando I live in, uh, it's predominantly Spanish speaking uh, in you know, like the, the high school where my my own daughter went to is 95% um, Spanish speaking and both my my own daughters now speak Spanish. I still struggle with it myself, but it's just it's just essentially the, it's the context. And so I, from time to time, 
like I was walking to the supermarket a couple of weeks ago and um, this gentleman was outside and he was actually from a church and he was witnessing for Jesus and he was trying to share his faith with me, mm-hmm. but he couldn't do it in English. And so we had this kind of awkward conversation. Like I know enough Spanish to say, Hey, I believe in Jesus and, and such, but when you get put in a position like, in, you know, you're talking to a, like, a, like you said, a dominant a white male here. So like if, if, if I get put in a situation where, I'm trying to do exactly what you said, but the person's English isn't good enough and my and I don't know their language. What are some tips to make that kind of an encounter as comfortable as possible and not come off dismissive when you simply don't have the vocabulary to talk to one another? Any any tips on how we could be better neighbors in those kinds of situations? That that presents uh it, it's its own unique set of challenges. Yeah, huh? yeah. We lack the ability to to have any meaningful shared meaning. There's something really powerful about communicating without words, though. Yeah. And I think you can communicate a lot non-verbally, even if it's just looking at this man and smiling and sort of nodding, sort of acknowledging that you're interested and that what they say has value, etc., um, th- there is a lot. I found myself in that situation many times, of course, living in the U.S. Um, I come from a high touch culture, mm-hmm. so I do a lot of touching of the people on the show. You know, kind of, kind of to signify I, I see you and, mm-hmm. and I get it. We may not be able to communicate very well, but. There's something, I think there's a lot of meaning you can convey non-verbally. And people appreciate that. It it, it cuts both ways in terms of sending uh, hostile messages versus affirming supportive messages with our bodies non-verbally. So when I'm putting those positions, I try to communicate, uh, I see you. I see you, I acknowledge you, and, and I appreciate what you're trying to do. Uh, there are limits to, again, our communication in this context, but I try, to, I try to convey those meanings personally. That's what I try to do. But when it comes to interlinguistic barriers, those, of course, present themselves, present um, interlinguistic differences, unique barriers when it comes to being able to communicate with each other. Good. Well, thank you. Yeah, and uh, as I mentioned uh, about the audience, we have a lot. We have a lot of pastors, and actually a lot of Christians are, would be listening to this particular podcast. And do you have tips for how churches or religious communities, and not to be speak Christians, but how religious communities can help our Latin American immigrant neighbors, you know, thrive and flourish in the in the U.S.? Uh, do you have any any tips how we could perhaps be more helpful than we've been in the past? That, that's um, that's a wonderful question. Uh, I'll try to answer it as best as possible, given that you know uh, uh, certain aspects of the question are not my area of, of expertise. Yeah, yeah, it's okay. Yeah, um, but it is undeniable that religious communities have a lot of power and influence to shape how people think and how they view the world and how we, per- and how, how we perceive each other. Uh, and when you look across religious texts from my surface level knowledge and understanding, a lot of them 
um, a lot of them are about similar themes of what we talked about before we get on, love your neighbor as you would love yourself, right? So a lot of them are truly about seeing beyond our differences, mm-hmm. right? That's at the core of many religions and religious texts, seeing beyond our differences. And this idea really ties to a lot of what I've been saying here today. The question is, I would say the question, the challenge is, how do we have certain conversations Mm -hmm. in our congregations, in our communities? So, So for me, the concept of I come back to being willing to have difficult conversations about who people are, why they are here, uh, uh, what they represent to society at large. I think for me, the extent to which as as, uh, uh, faith communities, the extent to which we're able to have these conversations effectively makes a tremendous difference in, in, in what the future of of the church in this case, but faith communities in general looks like, uh, because it is true that some of these younger generations see the world very differently than the older generations. So right there, you have an intergenerational divide, chasm that we have to bridge, right? Because, you know, I, I believe you know, faith communities and, and religion can really offer a lot of, you know, wonderful, great structure for our lives. And, and, and they are at the core of our communities. Um, but we also have, we still cannot escape the reality that we are many groups in this nation. We are different. We come from different places, different ethnic backgrounds. You know, uh, we're just different. So how do we talk about those differences for me would be critical it's good. In, in the, to the future of faith communities. Uh, again, what I said earlier about creating spaces to communicate. First, we have to be willing to have some difficult conversations about those differences, who we are, et cetera. And I believe that it can be done. Uh, when it comes to religious leaders, Right, that's one of the, the key uh, aspects of those of those folks that they are excellent communicators. So, I don't know if I answer your question, but that that that's that, there's a lot involved in uh, again being willing to have certain conversations and also how we have those conversations. Uh, the idea of are we being inclusive of all the voices, the primary stakeholders in that community, the voices in that community? That's good. That's good. Um, and, no, and thank and thank you for that. Um, yeah, and so just curious. I'm going to wrap. We'll wrap up the conversation. I'll be uh, fair to your time, and I appreciate you being my my guest today. And I want to move to some of the questions I like to ask all my guests, just to get some perspectives. And so, you know, you you, you have the you know your your you have your book um, Everyday Dirty Work that's that's come out, and I'll have links to it in the in the show notes and such. Um, what's the next for you and like your research? And is there maybe this was the big book that you've been planning to write, or sometimes I like to even ask, is there a book that you're kind of afraid to write? You know, not 
terrified, but sometimes there's like a topic that you're just like, geez, maybe I'll get to this someday. Like what, 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 what's, what's, um, what's, what's kind of your scholarly agenda look like, or maybe you even want to write a more popular book at some point. What, what, what might be, a new, what's some of the next projects coming up in your, uh, in your career? So the book I'm afraid to write is my memoir. Ah. I just, I'm like, there are so many people I don't want to throw under the bus. <laughs> I love it. I'm, I'm kidding, but not really. Uh, <laughs> so my spouse has been on me. Uh, she, she believes I have a, I have a powerful story to tell. Yeah. To my life experience. So there is a genre uh, uh, in writing, you know, memoir writing. Mm -hmm. Some of my English colleagues, they write memoirs. So that, that I'm, I'm, I'm putting that off for now. In terms of next steps, uh, I'll tell you what, what's been heavily on my mind the last few months. And I, I think this is my next book project. I've been really fascinated with the idea of, this may not be what you're expecting, but I am an organizational communication mm -hmm. scholar and teacher. The relationship between how busy we are in our lives, our lack of time, and our ability to form and maintain connections with people in our lives. I am fascinated by how little time we have and how that prevents us from connecting with ourselves, but also family, romantic, uh, our partners, our spouses, and friends. Uh, and, and that stems from my, pre-pandemic, but during the pandemic, everyone is on this fast moving treadmill yes. all the time, especially people with children and understandably so, right? It's, these are things that, so take time, children, work. In essence, how do we balance parenting, working and connecting with other people in our, in our personal relationships? So I've been fascinated with that idea for i said months it's been at least two or three years now so. I, I love that honestly and i mean that just resonates in my heart and i was just thinking geez when as soon as you're ready to really talk about that i think i'd like to have you on for another episode because i think that's i, I mean it. you're on the pulse of something so we're definitely going to stay in touch about that that sounds fascinating and and, I, and I not just fascinating helpful actually yeah yeah, so that's amen on that one. So, and, and what about you? I mean, you're a professor, you're a busy guy, uh, you have a family. So, what do you do for yourself semi regularly or maybe even daily? Do you have habits that kind of keep you grounded that let you be at your best, you know, most of the time? Absolutely. Uh, I try to stay on top of physical activity. Mm -hmm. So, I exercise several times a week, three to four times. Uh, I meditate. So I have a meditation practice, uh, nothing too serious, just 10 to 12 minutes every day. Um, I find that just talking with my wife is useful, like just having a sit down and have a talk with her every week about life. And we typically do it on Sundays. <laughs> I don't know if it's by design or not. It just so happens that Sunday is our day where we sit down and talk and, and kind of check in with each other. That's good. Uh, so, you know, I try to practice self-care as much as I can. Uh, um, yeah, and those are the core things that I do for self-care, um, you know. Yeah, love it, love it. Yeah. 
And if you were going to get now, this is the other impossible question for you today. If you're just going to pick a couple books and you're a scholar, so this is really hard. But if you're going to pick two or three books that have really shaped you deeply, um, what what comes to mind? Um, I would say scholarly both. I'm thinking of scholarly and popular yeah. books. And in terms of popular books, um. The Measure of a Man by Sidney Poitier. May he rest in peace, the yes. actor who recently left us to go to a better place. I read that book uh, and it did something to me mm -hmm. as I read about his life experience, what he overcame, all the people who showed him love and support along the way to get to what he became during a time in which his skin color was a major liability. There was something about reading that book um, whenever it came out over perhaps around 15 years ago or so that really touched me deeply as a human being. Uh, when it comes to scholarly, uh, there is so much, but I'll tell you who, um, who my one of my most influential when I think of scholarly voices, someone who's deeply affected me has affected me deeply is Neil Postman. Mm, yeah, he's one of the great cultural cultural critics of our time. He died in two thousand three, I believe. Uh, professor at NYU, uh, New York University. So he just had such a such an incisive. Uh, 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 such an uh, incisive ability to look at you as society and, and, and just show it to, to his audience as, as it is. Uh, uh, he and he, uh, he examined uh, the education system, the mass media, even uh, one of my favorite books of, of his is The Disappearance of Childhood, in which he discussed, he wrote about how uh, electronic media or digital media is going to fundamentally change the concept of childhood, uh, which, you know, as he, as he wrote about it, it was a, a, a social cultural creation in which fun fundamentally children are humans uh, who are human beings who are, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, thinking about the difference between a child and an adult, a child is someone for whom a lot of information is concealed. Mm, yeah. When you think about what a child is, we don't expose children to pornography, right? We try not to use profanity very much in front of children. So what Postman was saying was that electronic media or digital media was going to tear down those those barriers in a way because children now would be exposed to a lot of stuff at an earlier age because of our advancement and advancements in electronic digital media so he made those types of keen observations about com the complexities of, of of modern u.s society and and i would say he's one of my perhaps my most uh, influential writers uh, when I when it comes to the, to the people whose ideas I keep coming back to, he's that's good. Good. Yeah, thank you. And then just the last question: If um, people want to connect with you, I don't know if you have an online presence or where would you say to suggest folks go? Or where can they find your uh, your book, Everyday Dirty Work? 
Yes, yeah, so I am on social media and people can go to, I have a Twitter uh, account and it's uh, my last name, Alvarez. My first name, Wilfredo, W-I-L-F-R-E-D-O. I'm on Instagram. Uh, it's my last name, Alvarez, my first initial W and the number 12. Okay. Uh, Facebook, just look me up on my first and last name and I'm on LinkedIn. Uh, it's my first name and my last name, Wilfredo Alvarez, comma, PhD. Um, and of course, I'm online. If anyone wants to connect, uh, I, I could be emailed at wialvare at utica.edu. Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm on social media. I can also be reached out to my, um, to my university email address. Great. If you look me up online, you'll find me easily. Okay, well, great. Well, Wilfredo, it's been a pleasure having this conversation with you. I appreciate your time, and I, and I thank you for uh, using the gifts that uh, that you've received and making the most of you know the, your, your educational opportunities to write books, to mentor students, and now to help to educate even the audience of this podcast. So I appreciate your time very much. Hey, thank you, Brian, for the invitation. It was a pleasure. I enjoyed the conversation. I'm, I'm, I'm happy to come back and talk about my next book. Yeah, I definitely want to do that. So we'll, we'll, we will definitely stay in touch. And again, I want to thank everybody for listening all the way to the end of uh, this week's episode. And uh, until next time, live by faith, be known by love and be a voice of hope uh, in the world.